You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, 1. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves." On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the fountain that you have opened to cleanse us of our sin. We pray that we might know you, we might trust you all the more, being together now under your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Good evening. He is risen. He's risen indeed. I never get tired of that. If you are visiting with us this evening, we're so glad that you're here. Tonight is an unusual evening for us. We're going to baptize two gals right behind me here after this service, and then we'll be welcoming 10 new members to Christ Church in our covenant membership. We thought maybe all this would be better on an evening where there might be quite, not quite as many visitors here with us this evening, but then we we're like, man, you know what? What better night to do this, to show the saving power of God in people's lives, and then just to perhaps give you a little window into the life of our church. So we're just going for it all tonight. We've also been preaching right through the Gospel of John uh, over the past many weeks together, but we're going to take one week off from that to consider a very strange text from a very strange book, the book of Zechariah that Stephanie just read from, second to the last book in the Old Testament, if you want to start turning there and finding that. It's good for us to read and consider all of God's Word, even some of these difficult books of the prophets, even in a quick one-off sermon like tonight, and certainly and inevitably as we'll get to a longer look through a prophetic book in the future. Uh, It's good to spend time in the works of the prophets, the words of the prophets, for a couple of reasons. One, if if it's God's Word and God doesn't waste words, then All of God's Word is breathed out by Him, and all of it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, and Zechariah is no exception. But also, a second reason, in in understanding the prophets, uh, we are helped to understand the whole of the Bible. I recently heard someone say, rightly, that I think often we think of this thing as ununderstandable. 
It's just too much. It's too confusing. So even in the narrative parts, we kind of understand the stories that we're reading, but like, what? What is, what, what is, why is that in the Bible? And then we keep reading and we keep reading and we're like, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Ooh, that's, that's a very nice thing. That's, I like that sentence. I think I'll cross-stitch that onto a pillow for my settee as I, in my foyer in my house. And then we, but we keep reading. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Ooh, but that one should absolutely be a magnet on my refrigerator. That little one-liner just warms my soul. While there is certainly one-liners in this Bible, uh, we ought to understand this thing. And uh, the problem with treating the Bible as if it just contains just a few uh, soul-warming one-liners is that we're treating it is as if it's primarily just something that's about me. Uh, I don't understand what's in this book, but I can perhaps find a one-liner for a cross-stitch. But also, out-of-context one-liners can really be used to say whatever we want them to say, can't we? We can find an out-of-context one-liner in the Bible to support pretty much anything we want it to support. So understanding how the whole thing fits together can sometimes be very hard work, but it's vastly rewarding in, in knowing God, it's rewarding in seeing ourselves rightly, and it's rewarding in giving us life as we are reoriented to actually loving what is right and what is beautiful. So we're going to do some hard work this evening in Zechariah. You guys ever have strange dreams that don't really make much sense or you perhaps you wake up laughing from? This, this happened to me my, my freshman year of college. Uh, I remember uh, this dream where Shaquille O'Neal, who uh, was at the height of his basketball powers in these days, uh, he picked me up in his white Mazda Miata, and uh, Shaquille O'Neal took me to a high school prom where we walked in and we just kind of stood at the back and just observed what was going on, and then they were going to crown the prom king, and they called the name of this high school kid, this high school senior, uh, who was one year younger than me, his name was LeBron James, and they, 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 they called him up and crowned LeBron James. Uh, king of the prom, and I turned to Shaq, and I was like, you gonna let him do that, man? And he was like, he's the king, he's the king. And then I woke up, and that was it. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I enjoyed that one. But I often have dreams, as I'm sure all of you do, uh, that you don't, they don't really make much sense, right? They just go from one scene to the next, and there seems to be no connectivity between anything going on, and it's like, what just happened, right? Well, that's how you might feel as you read the book of Zechariah. There are eight different dreams that Zechariah shares in the first six chapters. And if you think that my dream was weird, or if you have any weird dreams, that's nothing, I assure you, compared to what Zechariah dreams. There are multicolored horses, like in the Wizard of Oz. There's a really strange guy trying to measure the width and the length of Jerusalem with a string. Uh, there's a flying scroll, and then perhaps the strangest scene in the entire Bible, there's a flying basket, and then out of the flying basket, the lid opens and a woman pops her head out. And then two angels like shove her head back into the basket, and then two other ladies who are flying with wings of a stork, they grab the basket and they fly away off over the horizon. Like, are we clear? Like, it's very strange. Uh, it's very confusing, and Zechariah is having visions and he's having dreams, writing at a time where there is a remnant of God's people who have been in exile, who have been in slavery in Babylon. They are coming back into the land. They are coming back to Jerusalem. And the entire book, bouncing in and through these dreams and strange visions, is about the restoration of God's reign, the restoration of God's rule over his people and over his kingdom. 
kingdom. And in that sense, Zechariah is a very clear uh, summary and explanation of the entire Bible. So it's good for us to understand it. So what we're going to do tonight is try to answer three questions about this book. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about ourselves? And then, how will God save us through this book? So first of all, what do we learn about God? The first thing that we learn about God from the book of Zechariah is that God is gracious. The very fact that the people are back in Jerusalem, the very fact that they're rebuilding the temple is evidence of God's grace. If you've been following the Bible reading plan that we've been reading together as a church, we've seen Israel's unbelievable sin, their horrible wickedness, their idolatry, their overall just disinterest in their God. And it will I assure you, if you've never read through the Old Testament, it will get worse than what we have been reading up until this point in 2 Samuel. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. But God, through Zechariah, reminds the people of their history and then urges them to repent. The very, uh, very beginning of the book, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Zechariah says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, God tells Zechariah to say, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you. And these are comforting and reassuring words from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven, that there is not one person too wicked, that there is not one person too sinful. There is no person that is too far gone from his grace and his mercy. Now, let's not sugarcoat this. Like, our sin, your sin, is actually really, really terrible. Horrible. Our very nature is more than just bad habits or an occasional slip-up or mistake that we ought to just try to minimize more and more of. God doesn't just have to overcome various sins that you may commit, but He has to overcome our very nature as against Him, as not wanting anything to do with Him, that to our very core we are sinful. We don't just commit sins. Our motivations, our self-worship, our overall disinterest in God is what he has to overcome. And like Judas, we have wanted to turn Jesus into something that he's not and to betray him. Like, like Peter, we have been too timid to identify with Christ and then been unwilling to follow him. Like Caiaphas, the high priest, or Pontius Pilate, we can, we can just sit aloof from Christ in like smug disdain or religious superiority and just dismiss him. But if you think that anything that you can do against God is greater than what God can do for you, you have far too low of a view of who God is and you have far too high of a view of yourself. God's grace, his mercy, his love is greater than any sin that you could possibly even dream of. Grace, grace, we often sing. God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And perhaps you think that we get up here and we talk and think too much about sin at this church. All right, I get it. I know I'm a sinner, right? But to quote one 17th century Englishman, he says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. 
We must truly understand our sin before we can fully and rightly relish in the salvation of God. And he says in Zechariah 8, God says in verse 7, I will save my people. And then again in 8.13, I will save you. And this is not because God's people are so deserving. They're so there's something so inherently awesome about you that just warrants you to be saved. No, it's because God is so faithful to his promises and he is so tenaciously committed to his people. It was true then and it's true now. Left to ourselves, we wildly pursue and pursue and pursue perpetually unsatisfying things. But for those in Christ, he so jealously loves them that he will not let them wallow in worship of created things. He will save them. He says so in Zechariah and from other minor prophets we read that he will allure them with his love. He will attract them with his love. And then elsewhere, he will quiet them with his love. God will quiet his people's hearts and their souls and their longings even by his love. And this should be all the motivation that we need to respond because if this is true, Christians, if this is true, then he loves you now. He really loves you, not just some future cleaned up, less sinful version of you, but the present version of you. And he loves you so much that he will actually make a less sinful version of you. This is great, great news. So right off the bat, let's hear God's command to us today to turn, to respond. He says, Return to me, and I will return to you. So perhaps you followed God many years ago. Perhaps it's been many years since you've been to a church service, since you've thought about God, since you've considered the words of the Bible, since you've perhaps sung a song or heard Christians singing a song to God, and this is the first time back in a really, really long time. Return to me, says the Lord. And I will return to you. He promises you this. So the first thing that we learn about the king is that he is gracious. And after we see this, we learn a second thing, that he is coming. Let's get to these dreams. The first vision and the eighth vision, the first and the last, they seem to go together. In both visions, there are four horses out patrolling the earth, and they return back to the Lord that they have found peace. But in the first vision, it's a false peace. The, the horsemen are out there convinced uh, that there is peace, but it's really just because the nations have convinced themselves that there is peace because it's kind of easy. There's comfort and ease in their lives. But in reality, there's no peace with God. In the eighth vision, there is actual and real peace with God because God has set his spirit on his people. They are under the full and comprehensive reign of the Messiah. More on that in a minute. So we have this two pieces of peace bread on top of this middle sandwich. So how will he do this? How will he accomplish not just this external peace, this peace from enemies, but an internal peace as well, a peace with God? Well, he'll do this with the climax of these visions, of the fourth and fifth visions. And in these fourth and fifth fifth visions, there's this priest and there's this king. 
And they're going to bring total peace, both externally and internally. And there's apparently so much overlap between these two dudes, the priest and the king, that throughout chapters 4 and 6, Zechariah keeps getting them mixed up. He keeps talking about one when he should be talking about the other. And it's because of the rule of this priest and king, or perhaps, as we're beginning to maybe guess, maybe a priest-king, one guy, that the iniquity of the land, the sin of the people will be removed, and God's presence will finally and fully live in and with and over his people forever. That it's because of the rule of this priest-king that all opposition, both externally and finally and fully, internally will finally be done away with. He's coming, Zechariah promises the people, to bring full and comprehensive peace. So in light of all this, that we've learned about God, that he is gracious, there's much, much more to learn from Zechariah, but that he is gracious, he's faithful to his promises, and that he's coming, what do we learn about ourselves? We learn, just like the people, we learn that we are stubbornly disobedient. Zechariah comes in chapter 7 then to remind the people about the ways of their fathers that were 70 years ago, before they were taken away to Babylon. And he says in chapter 7, verses 4 and following, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? God is accusing the people of what has been true of them for nearly their entire history, of empty religious ritual, that they fasted and feasted, but they did both of these things not because they loved God. If we are actually honest with ourselves, could we also not ask ourselves the same, the same questions? Is it for God that I come to a church service on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? Because I love him, because I want to worship him, because I want to encourage other Christians along in our walk towards him? Or is it just kind of a cultural expectation? It's just what we do as Americans or as what, what I've done because I was, I was raised that way or something? Is it actually for knowing God that I read the Bible? Or is it just to learn some interesting trivia or to check a box at the end of the day? Is it for God that I do anything? Or is it just for the expansion of my own kingdom, my own desires? So the people before Zechariah and the people in Zechariah's day, when they heard the call to repentance, they just repented, right? They, they heard God calling them to repent, and then they repented. Well, this is actually wrong. In verse 11 of tw- and 12 of chapter 7, Zechariah goes on to say, but they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, a great anger came from the Lord of hosts. My kids love the the Dude Perfect YouTube guys. Who am I kidding? I, I love the Dude Perfect YouTube guys. Uh, a couple months ago, they, they got this really huge diamond, like a big old diamond, and it had to have been like at least a $20,000 diamond. And they all took bets on whether if they put the diamond on an anvil and then took a hammer, if it would shatter it. And they just hit it 
over and over and over again. And most often, the tip of the diamond would just go further and further down into this iron anvil. It was amazing. Zechariah, though, is saying that for so many who hear God's word, who hear his call to turn, to return to him, who hear of his love, they're actually more like diamonds going further and further and further into the anvil, unable and unwilling to break. And while as Americans, one of the qualities in a person that we most admire is like a dogged and stubborn autonomy, right? We like that. Someone who, against all odds, just perseveres and like creates his or her business and he follows his dreams to the end, even though his family and friends told him not to, or whatever. Dogged, stubborn, autonomy. This is actually not something that is praiseworthy when it comes to the Lord. I pray this isn't you, that when you hear the kingdom of a priest king, when you hear that this God made you, that he deserves your worship, that he desires your love, when he offers you satisfaction and rest, when he offers you forgiveness of sin and peace with God, when he offers you his love, that you realize that your dogged and stubborn autonomy is not the place of life that you thought it actually was, but is actually the place of your death. The place of being apart from God and on your own. That's not where you want to be, left in your sins. This is not a desirable place as much as we want it to be. I pray that the velvet hammer of the gospel would shatter and then restore you into something far more beautiful than just a diamond on its own, but something that you were created to be, made and loved by and at peace with the God who has created you. Because God is real. God is real, and, and, and the reality that Jesus explains is true. And if all of this is true, whether or not we're actually able to keep our fingers in our ears, hoping that we don't hear the word of God is actually irrelevant to the way of reality, isn't it? If God is real in the way that Jesus has explained things to be, so don't go another week refusing to hear him, refusing to pay attention. Return to the Lord, and he will return to you. So maybe you're hearing this and thinking, okay, yeah, I want to hear. I, I don't want my hard heart to be this way any longer. I want to grow in love for God. I want my sin to be forgiven. But this is perhaps the most interesting and difficult question to answer now as we progress through this book of Zechariah, and perhaps the most difficult question to answer throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And that is, how can God both be simultaneously just and right? To not just excuse sin away, to not just excuse tyranny and genocide and murder and hatred in our own hearts away, but at the same time, be merciful, to be forgiving, to be loved. How can he be both at the same time? We've gotten some sense that it has to do with this priest king described in Zechariah. But then we keep going in chapter 9, verse 9. 
where we read that he doesn't come as we would expect him to come. Zechariah sees in the future, and he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. All right, the king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Yes! Humble and mounted on a donkey. What? On a colt. The foal of a donkey. I don't get it. I thought he was going to vanquish God's enemies. There would finally and fully be external peace from his enemies. How is he going to do this by being humble and quiet on a donkey? We get our answer in chapter 12, verse 10. What we heard Stephanie read earlier, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And this is just an unbelievable verse in the Bible. God says that he will pour out grace, he will pour out mercy when they look on me, and then he says him at the same time. When they look on me and him, And how in the world, though, will we little humans, we miserable little ants, pierce the very God of heaven, the transcendent God whom we cannot see, how in the world will he, will his enemies pierce him, pierce God? Well, God himself must become a man, and he comes with an actual body, and he will come humbly as a man, as both priest and king. And he will actually be killed by those that he came to save. Or as John Stott once said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That of all the characters in the Easter story, we should most readily identify with the criminal Barabbas. That through his freedom, Jesus is condemned. That through Jesus' condemnation, Barabbas is set free. What in the world? Can you imagine possibly being Barabbas, waking up on Saturday morning, like in a warm bed, perhaps at your parents' house? You tried to lead this insurrection against Rome. You were tried and found guilty. You were to be executed the night before, and then you wake up on Saturday morning. Thinking, what? I'm alive. I am alive. And the only reason that I am alive this morning is because that man, that guy, Jesus, whom they're calling the Christ, he went to death and he's dead now. In Jesus' life, he lived obediently because Israel before him and all of humanity after him could not and would not obey God's law. In Jesus' death, On the cross, he died sacrificially for us as a substitute for us, just like a substitute for Barabbas, but like as Barabbas is a model for all of us as a substitute for every one of us who would put our faith in him. That being separated from God temporarily, Jesus made it so that all of us who look on him would not be separated from God eternally. And the result of Jesus' life and death is grace and forgiveness and mercy for all who would look on him and believe. And we see in chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, 
there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The Apostle John would later write of that Friday, that Good Friday in Jerusalem about 550 years after Zechariah saw what he saw and wrote what he wrote. John writes in chapter 19, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And then again, another scripture, Zechariah, says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Those who look on the pierced God of heaven will receive his grace and his forgiveness. They will sit under his fountain of cleansing power. Or as we sang earlier, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Not some of them, not hopefully someday some of them, but all of them. So how will God save them? How will he redeem them, show them grace? How will he be both just, eternally just, and yet eternally forgiving and gracious and loving at the same time? The cross of Christ. The wrath of God poured out on the rebellion of humanity against him, but instead poured out on Christ so that he might pour to the dregs an empty cup of love and graciousness on those who would look on him and believe. Peter would later say in Acts 10, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus would tell two guys on a road in Luke 24 after his resurrection, Everything that was written uh, in the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, all of it was about me. It was about my coming death. Don't you see that the Messiah, the Christ, had to die so that you might have life? The prophets are always pointing and moving forward, preparing Israel in their time, and then preparing us as we read so that when Jesus appears on the scene, he's not just some interesting carpenter with some groovy ideas about God. He is God himself. He is the eternal priest king who has come to cleanse us, who has come to rule us. He is the saving rescue plan of the triune God. Amazing. And now through faith we are washed, we are forgiven by his blood, we are saved with confidence in his resurrection life. The tomb is empty. It's empty. Death is dead. Christ has won. He has conquered. The God of heaven who was pierced for his people is no longer dead but alive. And now those who look on him share in his resurrection life. His people, Christians, are those whose lives make no sense apart from the empty tomb of Christ. None. It's our only hope. And though he's come once, he's disarmed the power of sin and death, and he is even now ruling and reigning, he will still come again to fully and finally destroy sin and death forever. 
external peace and internal peace. So it's in that sense that the whole of our lives in this age, the whole of our lives is hung in the balance, as it were, on the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, that we wait. He will still come again fully and finally to destroy sin and death, but now there's this long-term period of waiting where we still experience pain, we still experience loss, expectations that we perhaps don't understand, we still experience death, but with a certain outcome of new life tomorrow, that Sunday is coming, that resurrection is coming. He will come. Zechariah saw his first coming, that he will come, and now as his people, in this hung in the balance, waiting people, we wait for his second coming. So do not harden your hearts. Trust Christ. Look on him whom we have pierced for the forgiveness of sins. Keep trusting him. If you have been trusting him, keep trusting him as your highest treasure, as the cleansing fountain. And then I pray that you join us here next week as we keep waiting for Jesus. As his people, together we keep learning of him. We keep learning of the kingdom that he is describing, that is upside down and different than we would have expected. We keep seeing him more clearly. Our prescription gets a little sharper together each week, and we'll get right back into John 10 next Sunday. Pray with me now. Our God, we are thankful for the plan of Christ. It is not something that we could have ever dreamed up. There is no way possible for us to have ever thought of a way that you could be both just and right to punish sin and yet overwhelmingly, eternally gracious, merciful, and loving towards your former enemies. What a God. What a Christ. What a cross. Father, help us not to just understand more and more each day, each year, the meaning of the cross of Christ, the meaning of his fountain of cleansing blood, but the meaning of the empty tomb, what that means for us as your people, that the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead is now at work within us. Father, help us know and understand that we we were once dead, but now alive in Christ. Help us, we pray, for your sake, for your glory, and for our own good. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.